All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And yes, we're back. This is the Mars Magazine Podcast. My name is Dario Strange. And this week, we're going to talk about an old film, a classic film from the sci-fi world called Colossus, The Forbin Project. And this was referenced uh, recently by the founder of Tesla and SpaceX, Elon Musk. And we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about why Elon Musk brought this film up and what the film means and kind of dissect the film. And to help me do that, we have this week a guest who returns who, uh, I guess this is his second appearance, John Threat. Hey, what's up? Uh, hacker, filmmaker, I don't know, like international uh, man of mystery, John Threat, will help us talk about that. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about an incredibly interesting uh, article that was published in The New Yorker uh, for the January 30th issue of The New Yorker. So I guess it's about to hit stands in a few days. That is titled Doomsday Prep for the Super Rich. And the subtitle is Some of the Wealthiest People in America, in Silicon Valley, New York, and Beyond, are getting ready for the cracking or for the crack up of civilization. And it's written by Evan Osnos. And this 8,000 word article, which, yes, that's a long article, but trust me, it's worth your time, basically leads in talking about apocalypse preppers. And kind of yeah, everything from people thinking of, I guess, Mad Max situations to uh, singularity situations to politics. And I think in some ways this article, and it's actually referenced in part of the article, in some ways this article is a reaction, I think, to the ascendancy of Trump, who is now our president here in the U.S., and so some, you know, down in the article, it kind of gets into uh, what Trump's ascendancy means to a lot of these super rich and, you know, why, you know, this may have some connection to their preparation for the possible apocalypse, the breakdown of society, you know, civil war, uh, Mad Max, you know, like uh, eating human flesh, or, you know, burning cities. No toilet paper. Yeah, no toilet paper, you know, no Wi-Fi signals. So, uh, you know, before we get into this, I, I have a bunch of questions to ask you about this, John, because I know you are very steeped in the uh, the underpinnings of this world. But I kind of want to drop some of the money quotes from this article that kind of blew me away. So uh, I think one of the biggest uh, pieces that a lot of people took out of this article was a quote from Steve Huffman, who is the uh, 33-year-old co-founder and CEO of Reddit. Uh, and he says, quote, if the world ends and not even if not even if the world ends, but if we have trouble getting contact lenses or glasses is going to be a huge pain in the ass without them. I'm fucked. And, you know, this is basically him talking about getting LASIK surgery uh, so he doesn't have to have, you know, the hassle of having glasses. You know, if society breaks down, which immediately called to my mind an ancient Twilight Zone episode uh, time enough at last. I think it's Burgess Meredith. That's uh, right. He's trying to, he's living in a normal world and he's trying to read books, but he never really has time. He works at a bank and to try to eke out some time to read, he goes down into the bank vault and he's just so happy with himself that now he has time to read. Uh, he's reading, and yes, so sorry, spoilers for a 40 year old uh, uh, episode from The Twilight Zone. Uh, a giant explosion happens. He comes up from, you know, he comes out of the bank vault and finds that 
the entire city has been demolished. The world has ended, I guess, by nuclear strike or some other attack. And he finds, you know, he, he can't find anyone. He walks for days. He can't find anyone. So he basically goes to the library and decides, OK, well, now I finally have time to read. And he's very pleased with himself. And he leans over to pick up a book and his glasses fall off of his face and crack. And it's kind of like, and that's the end. And so it's kind of like this ironic parable of you finally get all this time to read. You know, this was your main obsession. And now you find that, you know, you can't read and you have to worry about a bunch of other things. So it kind of made me think of that with uh, Steve Huffman from Reddit. So that was one money quote. Let's see. Another one was they quote, there's a lot of anonymous quotes in this article, uh, but they quote the head of an investment firm who says, I keep a helicopter gassed up all the time, and I have an underground bunker with an air filtration system. Uh, a lot of my friends do the guns and the motorcycles and the gold coins. That's not too rare anymore. We have Reed Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn. I, again, one of the most notable things about this article is that it doesn't just quote a bunch of cranks or kind of uh, fringe types or people from uh, what's that TV show, Preppers. It quotes some of the most from some of the biggest names in tech, you know, in Silicon Valley. Uh, Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, says, quote, saying you're buying a house in New Zealand is kind of like a wink, wink, say no more. Once you've done the Masonic handshake, they'll be like, oh, you know, I have a broker who sells old ICBM silos and they're nuclear hardened and they kind of look like they'd be interesting to live in. So that's him talking about, you know, his kind of internal conversations among the, the rich. And one more. Uh, Justin Kahn, who I think a lot of people know him from Justin TV, uh, Twitch, and he's now kind of like a, just a general investor in tech. Uh, he says, um, a friend, he recently had a friend at a hedge fund who said, uh, he was telling me we should buy land in New Zealand as a backup. He's like, what's the percentage chance that Trump is actually a fascist dictator? Maybe it's low, but the expected value of having an escape hatch is pretty high. And that's just like a few quotes from this like incredible article that I think for some confirmed a lot of their fears and for others scared the hell out of them because this is coming from a lot of very credible people. So, I mean, I, what was your initial reaction to this when you read this? Uh, I guess this just came out like in the last couple of days. I don't know if I was terribly surprised by this article. I have to say I'm a bit of a collapsitarian, so I already sort of um, skim constantly uh, articles related to um collapse and people's reaction to it. Um, and in some ways, when I uh, examine my own um, thought processes about it, in some ways, it's very much like a little boy's or woman's fantasy about collapse. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't take these precautions, but I'm saying that I think if you pull a lens back a little bit, it's kind of interesting how we're triggered by the idea of surviving um, is part is part and parcel of our DNA. So it shouldn't really be a surprise that people, if they have the means, will try to figure out a way to predict if shit's going to go bad and then survive. And before we get too deep into it, I want to drop a couple of more uh, quotes. Just uh, Robert Duggar, a former lobbyist uh, from the financial industry and now a philanthropist, uh, said... Anyone who's in this community, meaning, you know, the wealthy community, knows people who are worried that America is heading towards something like the Russian Revolution. That one kind of took, like, threw me off. Um, another one, Robert Johnson, who uh, who is a former George Soros fund management exec and now the head of a think tank, 
uh, said, I know hedge fund managers all over the world who are buying airstrips and farms in places like New Zealand because they think they need a getaway. So this was so one of the themes of this article, aside from just doom, you know, and, you know, backup plans is New Zealand, New Zealand, New Zealand. Like that continues to come up in this article. And um, it says, based on statistics that they uncovered uh, in the first seven days after Donald Trump's election, over 13,000 Americans registered with New Zealand's immigration authorities. And they say this is more than 17 times the usual rate. And American buyers were second only to Australians. And as you know, anyone who knows their geography, Australians right across, you know, the water from New Zealand. So that kind of makes a lot of sense. It's not a big deal for an Australian to, you know, register with New Zealand's immigration authorities. But for the second largest registrations to come from America, that that is eyebrow raising. So, I mean, have you been to New Zealand? Do you I mean, do you get us like what is your take on this this kind of focus on New Zealand? Well, I think that New Zealand is, you know, perceived as a place that is uh, isolated and far away, not involved in any international politics or if things went kind of crazy on the war tip. No one's like ever thinking about let's bomb New Zealand like they're kind of out of it, but not physically not in the midst of it like Switzerland. So it makes ideal. And it's also sort of like pleasant. It's not crowded. It's not arid like Australia. So, you know, people perceive it as an excellent place. Um, there's also a lot of people that purchased in like Uruguay and South, South America, all the way near the tip. Like a lot of people also are buying survivable, survival land there as well, um, with land, you know, with air, airstrips. But, um, but right now, a lot of the, the, the money, the flashier developers, are building stuff in New Zealand and selling land there and also the silos in um, stateside, the uh, the uh, decommissioned uh, missile silos. Okay, but before we get too much into the stateside facilities, I want to stay on New Zealand for a second. And I, I just remember the first time that I really got any awareness as New Zealand or of New Zealand as kind of like a refuge was when uh, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak made this big announcement. I feel like it was maybe about 10 years ago, uh, talking about how he was going to become a, a citizen in New Zealand and he was moving to New Zealand and that's where his new life is. And he made a big deal about that. And that's when I started paying attention. Okay, what's what's so great about New Zealand? And then I remember, um, oh gosh, what's the name of the hacker? He's a very large... Kim.com. Yeah, Kim.com. When I found out that he had set up this like mega facility in New Zealand, I was like, okay, something's going on in New Zealand. So, I mean, what, what, I mean, like just from your vantage point as someone who travels internationally and you deal with like a lot of developers and people who, you know, maybe dip in and out of, you know, prominence in terms of like maybe people who are important, but maybe we don't know their names uh, in the media. Like what, like what's the word out there? Like, you know, in between the margins on New Zealand, like, cause, cause this is clearly something that, has some resonance on, you know, some kind of subtext level. Right. Well, I mean, it's a very, it's a very pleasant place. And it's like the idea that you have being there is that, uh, if shit went to pot, like effectively, like people would probably work together and say, hi, hello, <laughs> you heard about the nuclear war? Yeah. Hey, you need a chicken? Like it's all, it's not like it already is sort of pastoral and calm for the right. most part. So like 
it seems like the perfect place to to set up. Um, people there are not really uh, uh, riled up and caught up in a lot of the um, the things that most of the world is caught in. It's like in a, a sort of like protected, beautiful, comfortable bubble. And so along those lines, so when we talk about someone like a Steve Wozniak who has moved there, that kind of makes sense because if society breaks down, if some major nuclear event or war event happens, it's very unlikely, even if you have a private jet, that you'll necessarily be able to get to New Zealand if you live in America. So, you know, actually moving there and establishing citizenship seems like, like I, I, I'm taking him far more seriously than a lot of these other people who are kind of just buying vacation homes there and hoping, I guess, they can get there by hook or by crook, uh, you know, when things break down. But to that end, so this article, the New York article, also mentions stateside facilities. And one that it focuses on is called the Survival Condo Project. And this is a facility, an underground facility uh, just outside of Wichita, Kansas. And it's called, like, they describe it as a 15-story luxury apartment complex built in an underground Atlas missile missile silo. And uh, it housed a nuclear warhead from 1961 to 1965. Full floor units were advertised at $3 million a piece, and the developer is also working on similar facilities in Idaho and Texas. So this is real. We're back to the 80s where, you know, or even, I guess, even the 50s where bunkers and your your own fallout shelters be kind of you know became kind of like this normal thing like back to the twilight zone i can't remember the name of the episode but there's also a very famous twilight zone episode about a group of neighbors having like this really friendly dinner party everything's warm and cheery and then suddenly the disaster sirens go off uh for like some sort of you know airstrike attack and everyone runs to their homes and it turns out that only one of the neighbors has an underground fallout shelter stocked with food and prepared for the worst and the rest of the episode uh is just you know the entire neighborhood banging on the door pleading to be let into this bunker you know i won't spoil spoil the entire thing for it but you know an amazing episode of the twilight zone kind of predicting what might happen in such an instance so you know, I, I talked to some people here about stateside options, you know, in terms of what they would do when the worst happens. I mean, how realistic do you think that is? Honestly, most people are guessing. Most um, are going to take a different turn on this. I mean, I think there's lots of positive things to point out in those articles. I think one of the great things in that New York Times, uh, New Yorker, the New Yorker article is the the opportunity that the silo developers have to pitch their silo apartments for millions of dollars, but in the process are forgetting the OPSEC and are actually in detailing all the options that the silo has. They're actually giving away a lot of security details. Right. I thought about that. Yeah. And one of the things I find interesting as a thought experiment about survival in those situations is that we don't, you don't know how it's going to come. So on one sense, if you prep for, you know, civil unrest, you might not be ready for nuclear war. If you're ready for nuclear war, you might not be ready for, you know, a flood. You know, a good example is, you know, let's say, you know, unrest drives you underground in a silo, but then a huge uh, tsunami comes inland 
enough to cover Kansas, which is doubtful that would happen. But, yo, what if it did? Who knows, right? Meteor hits the ocean, huge thing swamps in, and now your um, silo becomes a tomb. And, you know, the guy who just had a little shack on top of a mountain in the Colorado's you know, it's like, ha survive. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, I've had actually a couple of um, brushes as, uh, as I know you did, you were here, you were here in New York uh, for 9-11, right? No, no, I was on a plane on 9-11. Really? Wait, wait, wait yeah. lay that out. I didn't know that. Well, where were you on 9-11? Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't in New York. I was, um, I was headed to England. Oh, wow. And did your flight get diverted? Uh, no, no, I landed like before and then I had just, then as soon, like as soon as I landed, like that's when I got messages that it was uh, happening and got sent uh, a shitload of messages. And I warned people actually that were downtown, like, yo, you should go outside. And it kind of creeped them out that I was in England messaging them. <laughs> like you had foreknowledge of this? <laughs> no, I had no foreknowledge. Okay. Of All right. I, I, was in, I just happened to be you know, plugged into what was happening. Right. People let me know or saw, or, you know, somebody I know saw the plane go in and warned me. So, right. um, well, I mean, yeah, no, I had just landed in England. So, I mean, when these kind of things are brought up, I always think about my own experiences with my time here in New York during 9-11 uh, and kind of the, the sentiment on the street, the blackout, I think it was 2003 uh, here in New York, massive East Coast blackout. That lasted, I think, at least a couple of days. I was in Japan during the Fukushima earthquake and subsequent tsunami, which, you know, led to rolling aftershocks and power outages and contaminated water and people freaking out and suddenly leaving for other parts of the country and in many cases leaving Japan altogether. It was really, you know, in, it's in these instances that you get to really see how people really respond to disaster. You know, forget what you think you, you'll do, what kind of hero or heroic efforts or, you know, you know, really you know, how, how together you'll be. You know, when you watch these disaster movies, you know, how you think, you know, well, I would do this. Well, you know, I've been through a few of these things and people generally panic. Even the smartest people, even the most educated people and people of means generally panic. And so that's why this article resonated for me so much, because it's it, it's I don't know, it, they get into such detail. And like you said, it's kind of like they're giving away some of their security secrets. But it also kind of, I feel like, stokes the flames of this like back to the 80s, back to the 50s fallout shelter you know, is doom about to come? I mean, do you think this is representative of like some real, I don't know, existential threat? Or is this kind of just a trend piece that is kind of dovetailing with the Trump presidency in almost an opportunistic way? I think of it in three parts. I think there's a part of humanity since, since we developed our mental facilities. There's a part of us that always is waiting for doom um, I think it's just part of our natural survival. I'm sure like deers, you know, who are all nervous in the field eating grass are thinking, you know, I could be eaten at any moment. And they're like ready to jump like 10 feet at the slightest sound. And I think that trigger is inside of us, too. It's just that for us, we may not fear anymore like a little noise in the dark, but we do fear the thought of of extinction from nuclear Holocaust or a meteor or some runaway weather event 
you know, or overheating or slow collapse. But I also think there's a part where in our current level of society, there is a real um, chance for collapse. You know, we just and, and I think that the current political climate in America has all the hallmarks of the warning signs that many empires have before they collapse. Um, doesn't mean it's going to collapse. It just means that there are huge warning signs. And, you know, frankly, we, you know, sort of in some ways we're not overdue. In other ways we are. I think that um, one of the biggest things that a lot of people talk about is sort of climate change, which let's face it, that's part of the thing. I mean, I think it's arrogant for us to think that we could stop climate change if it's going on. But at the same time, if we're not preparing for the worst, what might come people are going to be very surprised about the changes. I think that the changes, I personally think that there are changes afoot. Whether it's man-made or not is not even the point. I think there's huge changes coming in the climate that we're not going to be able to do anything about, and it will cause huge amount of unrest and potentially a collapse in some societies, um, potentially even America. Well, you know, it makes me think about uh, Hurricane Sandy here in New York, where, you know, there was massive flooding in lower Manhattan, and, you know, there were power, massive power outages, you know, so and I've actually noticed like locally, at least uh, there's like this trend where uh, downtown Manhattan used to be a very popular kind of real estate market. And it's, it's not, I mean, you know, people are still buying and renting apartments down there, but I've spoken to real estate agents and they have noticed like a clear trend uh, for families moving uptown, uh, even into areas like Harlem, Hamilton Heights, and in some cases, Inwood, simply because they want to get away from flooding uh, concerns. So, I mean, this is all very real. It's, begin- it's, it's beginning to come to fruition, like, you know, some of the climate change stuff. So I'm just wondering, but just in general, just whether it's I don't know, uh, civil unrest, uh, you know, some sort of climate thing, uh, a war conflict. I mean, are you, I mean, do you feel comfortable discussing your own position? Like, do you, do you feel comfortable getting into where you stand with all this? Are you well, a prepper? I have, I have thoughts about it. I am a collapsitarian. There's no doubt about it. So wait, it. unpack that phrase uh, for those who don't know, or that term for those who don't know what that is. Right. This is not widespread, but I just I'm using it as a term for people who might be obsessed with collapse scenarios. Okay, that maybe that'll be the name of this episode, the collapsitarian episode. Okay, great. And so your own position, where are you at? Well, I mean, I think that it's um, it's wise to to check it out. I also think one thing I think about collapse, one position I've been retreating to about collapse, that it's sort of like survival might be more like a, 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 a crab maga situation, like a like a martial arts situation where you sort of like have to read the current situation that you're in and survive from that point. If that makes sense. Right. So like the idea of like planning what it's gonna be is difficult. Like yeah, it's dope if you have like ten motorcycles and shotguns for your friends, but the reality sometimes isn't like that. If you somehow, if it's an earthquake and you're trying to get out of there and you break your leg during the thing and you can't ride the motorcycle and now you've got no other skills, you might be shit out of luck. I think that like, you know, I think that um, obviously there are skills to be had, like foraging off the land and knowing, you know, what to eat and practicing, having a really good uh, immune system. Um, cause it's not going to do you any good if you billionaire fly in and 
you're allergic to zucchini and the farmer you paid only grew zucchini there and you're like <laughs> ah i can't survive like, <laughs> right you, right <laughs> why did you do this you wind up in a burgess Mer- meredith situation um and also too let's face it i mean if you don't work on your personal skills um and you know you're one of these um phenotypes from uh san francisco that's super privileged you know you're gonna wind up like that privileged guy in dawn of the dead like, <laughs> i know exactly who you're talking about right <laughs> oh, we make the dawn of the dead and like you'll beat you'll beat you'll find yourself as the odd man out in your own rich complex which your you know employees and i think that article brought up a good point like one guy was saying he was like yo you know it's all good to have an airstrip in new zealand and a private plane and you're flushing with pride that you have money and a way to get there. But in a collapse scenario, what would motivate the pilot to fly you there unless he's single? And uh, most pilots are not. They're usually, uh, you know, I've met some single pilots, but uh, most pilots, you know, between their, their money and schedule, it's just a, it just happens to be some and they, the fields they come from to become a, a pilot. They usually have are married and have some kind of family. And even if they didn't, they have an extended family. It's supposed to be like, bye, I'm going to survive on my own and fly this guy to survive. No, you have to probably plan to take the pilot with you. Now, there are quite a few billionaires with more than enough money, including some that I work for that, you know, their, their pilot is, is kind of living with them already anyway, in some ways. So it wouldn't be a big deal if the family came down. But some of these guys are obtuse and they don't they never took that into consideration that like, you know, it's nice the idea of it. Like I'm paying these security guys to be to protect me. But if it goes to shit, I mean, and their families aren't protected. What's their motivation? The other thing is also interesting for debate is about the nature of money. Like if shit goes to shit, like gold and stuff like that, how worth how much is that really going to be worth? Yeah, it's worth nothing to me. (laughs) Worth nothing. Right. And that's the idea about all of these things. Um, I think a good survival film, the actions that the character took is an example to me is actually War of the Worlds. It's not my favorite film, but Spielberg's uh, War of the Worlds, Tom Cruise's character. Oh, okay. The new one. Gotcha. Yeah. I love the decisions that he was forced to make. Like the crowd was unruly and he could, he had a gun and he was out of control. They took that gun from him. Right. So wait, specific, what was it specifically about his actions that you thought were noteworthy? Because he had a car and a gun and the crowd stripped it from him within seconds. Like there was, he was forced to make a decision for him and his kid that did not involve all his preps is what I'm saying. And I think that that's a, a real possibility. So if you're, if you feel like you have all this stuff, what you know, there's a chance you may not be able to exercise that stuff is what I'm saying. So in some ways, you almost have to have like a core sort of like mentality of like being able to improvise is going to be a lot more. I mean, that's what you see in like, you know, movies like Indiana Jones, like his character is very improvisational for survival rather than um necessarily prepped up. Like, you know, the scenes in those action movies where they team up with a ton of stuff no it's more like a team where you like build the stuff to deal with the situation you know when they would lock the a team in the closet and they take like farm tools and stuff and next you know they turn it into like a tank right like those are the skills you're probably going to need more than necessarily owning a bunch of stuff 
Um, and there's no guarantee you can maintain all that stuff. I think the article also mentioned, like, yeah, you have the plane and you land, but, like, unless you're ready to stay there forever, like, who knows? The plane needs maintenance. Like, it might be a one-way trip. Right. And, you know, I think this is also kind of maybe part of why zombie films and the zombie genre has come back to prominence. There's an episode in The Walking Dead, one of the early seasons, where the group gets to the CDC facility, the bunker in Atlanta. And it's like this super well-stocked technologically. Like it has its own electrical or own power supply. Uh, it has showers, food, everything's still working. And, but in the end, what, you know, what you see in the episode is that none of it really matters because you can't just, you know, even though, you know, this amazing facility exists, you can't, I mean, that's no life. I mean, you know, the world has changed. And, and I think um, it, mo- it also makes me think of another kind of zombie film, um, I Am Legend, the one with uh, Will Smith, where he kind of has his whole system devised, you know, in his uh, brownstone in Greenwich Village. But it's not, you know, it's not really a really a full life. You know, if, if society has collapsed, if civilization has, has collapsed, you know, just hiding yourself in a bunker, that'll work for a while. But after a while, it, it becomes, I think, a little, uh, I don't know, it, there's there's a sickness, I think, like a, a social isolation, I guess, that kind of like right. begins to impact who you are. Like the road. Oh, man, the road. Oh, God. You know, I was scared you're going to bring the wife up. gave up. I mean, well, I mean, I think that that's the other thing. So that's what I think I meant. So let me clarify earlier when I was talking about it's just people's fantasies, like a, like men and women. Like, I I love to go over it, too. Like, ah, I got my motorcycle and blah, 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 and this, that, and the third, and, you know, um, your bike. But, I mean, you know, honestly, if you bust out in a situation where it's all crazy and you bust out on your motorcycle and people have, you know, and you're, like, skipping all the cars, you think somebody – the chances of somebody, you think they're just going to be like, damn, that guy's smart. Someone's going to be like, yo, fuck this car. Get his motherfucking right. motorcycle. Yeah, you'll likely like, have that... like a crowd of people chasing you down, basically. <laughs> yeah. They're like, come on, that honey, we need that bike. All four of us can fit on it. And I think that like, that like, we have this fantasy in our head about it, but the road is so great because, you know, one, it illustrated that, yo, some people will just give up. I have some friends that have told me like if shit hit the fan, like they don't they don't play games like other people. Like, yeah, I would fight to survive. You know, they just straight up say, yo, if shit just went crazy, I, I'd just lay down and die. I wouldn't actually. Well, <laughs> that, wouldn't actually, well, actually that's anything. what happens in the I haven't read the book by uh, Car- Cormac McCarthy, uh, I believe is his name, the author of the novel that the film's based on. But I've seen the film. And that's actually what happens at one point in the film. Um, the guy's wife, the protagonist's wife, just says, okay, I'm done. I can't take this anymore. And she just walks out into the night, you know, to, I guess be yep. ravaged by apocalypse somehow. I, I yeah. love that film because it really shows you kind of, I think, a more likely scenario for kind of an apocalyptic situation. It's so realistic. I think it's far more realistic than almost right. any other. It's closer to the truth right? Um, of those scenarios like that. Like over time, if things got bad, like a lot of people, they wouldn't recognize their former life. Now, some people can deal with that shit like crazy, you know, like they're they're like a rock mentally. But there's a lot of people that have a fantasy that they're that hard. But if it came down to it, they would fold in a second. 
I mean, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I don't have my breaking point. I'm not pretending that. Right, right. That I do know that my personal drive is probably stronger than just like laying down. And I give, yo, I have to give my friends that say that respect that they're in touch with themselves to know, you know, they'll just be like, yeah, I'm, I'm not running. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wait here. <laughs> it's deep. It's deep. But I don't know. My mind doesn't work like that, but it's deep that some people would just see the end of it all and just, they wouldn't go forward. Yeah, and that's why I think, you know, beyond building bunkers or fallout shelters or even devising escape plans, I think the only real way, you know, if this is where your head is really at, is to do something like Steve Wozniak, which is to basically say, okay, I feel like I have a sense of where this is all going. I'm out. I'm out now. (laughs) Right, right, right. That's true. You know, and just go ahead and make the move and set up shop wherever you believe. And again, there's no guarantee that New Zealand will necessarily be safe. And I think after this article, it's probably a little less safe, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just to make that early bet. And, you know, yes, you'll miss out on some of the benefits of being, you know, super involved in things happening in Europe and, you know, in America and all that. But, you know, I guess you'll feel some sort of uh, security, you know, and you'll just you know, I guess sit back and uh, wait for uh, things to go off the rails, which they may never. You may just spend the rest of your life in New Zealand on some farm uh, feeling safe. And then in your golden years, you know, as you begin to fade away, realize, wow, you know, I could have I could have uh, been out there doing all this other stuff. So, I mean, it, it's a trade off. But I think, yeah. you know, if you really are thinking like that, I think, um, you know, kind of the, the Wozniak way and, and I guess uh, the Kim.com way, you know, sans some of the shady dealings that he is alleged to have engaged in. Um, that's probably more the uh, more realistic way to go. So anyway, the, the article, again, is called Doomsday Prep for the Super Rich. It is in the January 30th issue of The New Yorker, and it's by Evan Osnos. Highly recommended, but block out some time because it's a pretty long article. Next, we're going to talk about Colossus, the Forbin Project. This is the dawning of the age of Colossus. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Dr. Charles Forbin. In a few moments, Colossus will address us directly. This is the voice of world control. I bring you peace. It may be the peace of plenty and contempt, or the peace of unburied death. The choice is yours. Obey me and live. Or disobey and die. The frightening story of the day man built himself out of existence. Colossus, the Forbin Project. And so I was first made of this aware of this film, I guess, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, following the Twitter feed of Elon Musk. Elon Musk, who is the founder of Tesla and SpaceX, who often talks about uh, the singularity and kind of like apocalypse scenarios specifically related to artificial intelligence. And I thought, you know, I had seen most of the very important artificial intelligence, uh, you know, end time scenario films. And I had never seen this film. Uh, Colossus, the Forbin Project, uh, was distributed in 1970. It was shot in 1968, directed by Joseph Sargent. Joseph Sargent, by the way, is also, for film buffs, he also directed The Taking of Pelham 123 uh, in 1974, which is one of my favorite films starring Walter Matthau, and it just talks about kind of like the hijacking of a train, 
uh, Subway Train in New York, amazing film. And this, if you like that film, if you know that classic film, that same urgency and thriller dynamic is brought to this earlier film, uh, Colossus, The Forbin Project. And it basically tells a story. We, you know, spoilers for The Forbin Project, uh, Colossus, The Forbin Project. But uh, it tells a story of a scientist who has devised a supercomputer that is capable of protecting the United States, has control of the United States uh, military systems. And he, at one point in the beginning of the film, hands over full control to this supercomputer called Colossus. And everyone's celebrating, everyone's really happy. And in very short order, Colossus begins communicating with another uh, another computer on the other side of the planet. And these two computers essentially join forces. And I don't want to spoil everything. I want you to, well, I guess we'll unpack it. So I'll say we're going to talk a couple of minutes about it, and then we're going to get into spoilers in a few minutes. But hijinks ensue. And just to kind of rewind for a second, what was really interesting about this is Elon Musk tweets a lot of interesting things, specifically about artificial intelligence, the future. What was interesting about this tweet was, I'll I'll actually read it. He said, uh, Rewatched Ghost in the Shell and the end of Colossus, the Forbin Project. And at the end of the tweet, he includes a link to YouTube. And that link is to the entire film. It's like, I think, a little bit over an hour. And it's, you know, it's basically an illegal, you know, you know, film link. I've never seen him do that. You know, I've seen him maybe link to a trailer or mention a film. I've never seen him link to an illegal upload of a film. And so, oh, yeah. Yeah. So when I saw him do that, I thought, OK, this is really important to him, you know, because who knows, you know, maybe the uh, the film studio will kind of like ping him or come after him or, you know, maybe try, you know, the guy's, you know, super rich. So maybe they'll come after him in some way. So for him to kind of post that link to the full film. And by the way, if you do, uh, if you don't have access to whatever streaming services or, you know, another way to find the film, yes, you can access Elon Musk's. Twitter feed, and it's uh, the January 16th post, and the link is still there. So yeah, so that's how I learned about the film. I watched it and watched it twice. That is how impact, and I plan to watch it again very soon. You see, but you were already aware of this film, right? Yeah, I love this film. I know this film. I've watched it many times over the years. Um, when I first saw it, it was like a. Dis- I felt like it was a discovery because even years ago when I saw it as a kid, it wasn't like recommend it per se you know like it wasn't like on like some special you know it wasn't particularly lauded per se it's an obscure film i think for some reason it did fall through the cracks although from the trailer it looks like all the press loved it when it came out right for some reason it's really obscure film um not sure if i already said this but just to make sure it was based on the 1966 novel by uk author df jones also Oh, well, also the 70s also has great title name titles. Um, oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, like incredible titles. And honestly, the Colossus, the Forbin Project. Yo, what does that even mean? <laughs> exactly. Like, you don't know. <laughs> you have no idea what you're getting into when you right. hear that title. It gives away nothing. You Colossus, actually, you probably think I might I think I might even thought it's like a giant statue coming to life or something. Right. Like, Where's the statue? But no, it drived in and I was like, whoa, computers. <laughs> and then the main guy in it, um, he is a uh, 
he was on I, my introduction to that actor is from Young and the Restless. He's like this smarmy guy on a soap opera. Eric Brayton. Yeah, I watched him in my uh, like my grandmother one summer had on Young and the Restless, and I watched a few episodes with her. And then I watched this movie. I'm like, holy shit! It's a guy <laughs> from a soap opera in a major motion picture. Right, right. And he's really and smooth, he by the way. It. He's like a. It's like if James Bond was one of the leading, uh, the world's Artificial leading intelligence. A- right. I mean, I mean, I have to bring this up before we go too much further. At one point, he's making the perfect martini. Do you remember this? Yes. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, imagine a film today. You know, film today about artificial intelligence taking over the world. And imagine a film taking, whatever, 10 minutes to just go back and forth between the human and the computer about how to, in very much James Bond style, make the perfect martini. I mean, those little touches are what I think, you know, lends to this film's, you know, ability to kind of transcend normal science fiction. It's it's almost like a spy thriller, really. When everything goes to shit, he's still like, I got this. But not in like a, a, a weird, like... Like a uh, uh, like Trump like way, but like in a cool way, a thinking man's way. Right. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So I guess now we can go ahead and get into spoilers. What happens is um, there's another computer uh, in the uh, USSR, I guess Soviet Union at the time, and they've been developing it in secret. And these two computers begin speaking to one another, and they join forces. And they essentially begin giving ultimatums to the humans. Do this or that will happen. Do this or that will happen. And at one point, two of the artificial intelligence, uh, whatever, scientists decide to meet in Rome. And they're meeting in Rome and Colossus has determined what's going on. Well, no, actually, they interrogate. Colossus interrogated the humans back in the U.S., figured out where uh, Professor or Dr. Forbin was and tracks him down and has a human basically holds the holds Russia hostage and says, if you don't take out the guy that uh, Dr. Forbin is meeting with, uh, you know, I'm going to lay waste to, to Russia. And so agents arrive in Rome while these two artificial intelligence scientists are meeting and takes out one of the scientists, thus... I guess the presumption being that this is kind of preventing them from joining forces to figure out how to take the computers down and, you know, you know, wrest control back. And it's at this point that Dr. Foreman Forbin actually looks really scared. He he, like, he's okay. This is because up until then he's very James Bond. Like he's very, you know, very confident, very cocky. There are several scenes where he's speaking to the president in a very, arrogant way no 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 no, no, no mr <laughs> president you know what i mean he's like no 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 yeah, yeah. mr president well, let, let yeah. me tell you what's really happening here and uh it, it, and he's really the president is like very they the president they chose is very like every guy kind of guy right. he's almost like a guy like you could see him like coming out of a deli with a sandwich <laughs> right right no but i mean he, he does the president thing well but Dr. Forbin just owns him in every scene. Right. That's what I mean. Like the interaction, because he's so smooth, the president just looks like a guy, right. a regular guy. He's a definitely presidential, but he's just this guy. What do you tell? He knows everything. He wears a suit. Well, he knows where to place Colossus at. He like 
we're going to build it under a mountain. Blah, right. blah, Like he's like really intense about the details. Oh, which oh, also he, come in. I forgot yeah. to talk about the beginning. Uh, speaking about the mountain, the beginning of the film starts with no dialogue, just music and showing you visuals of Dr. Forbin walking down massive corridors that uh, house Colossus, the computer. Um, and, you know, as many of you who out there who will know computer history, computers used to fill entire rooms. And so the conceit in this film is that because this is a supercomputer, the Colossus must you know, how it must be housed in this giant mountain facility. And there's these massive walls of computer terminals make up Colossus. And so it's not, you know, it's nothing similar to what we have now, you know, where everything's much smaller. And so it shows Dr. Forbin walking down these really cool corridors. The lighting effects are very convincing. And then when he leaves the Colossus brain, I guess you would call it, there are all these security measures that essentially cut off Colossus from any human contact, which I'm, I'm watching this at the beginning of the film. I'm like, okay, this is bad. Like this already, <laughs> I got more ready worried because you're closing off this computer in a way that's going to make it hard to get back in. Anyway, so moving back forward. So the meeting with the other scientists from Russia is canceled uh, by assassination uh, by Colossus. Uh, Dr. Forbin hops back in his helicopter, goes back to the stateside facility, and basically Colossus begins to tell Dr. Forbin what to do, and he puts him under surveillance and uh, tasks him with developing a, a voice. And the voice is actually, do you remember Battlestar Galactica, the, the original? Yeah. Yeah, so it's basically the same electronic voice of the Cylon, and he constructs this voice for Colossus, and they begin interacting through, you know, verbal command. That was another thing that was really cool about the film. Uh, before the voice interface uh, part of the plot, every command is entered via type, typing. Right. And so he, but but if you notice, like he, spe you know, he very dramatically speaks the command or the whatever, whatever words he wants to say to Colossus, just kind of in the air. But then the camera very smartly shows the guy typing the commands into the computer. So I thought that was a nice touch. It's a very smart film. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's it's very intelligent in the way it approaches this topic. Um, oh, and don't forget, he like wants the computer specifically wants to increase how many cameras he has everywhere to surveil the entire world. And like it's like, and the cameras are like, you know, they're seventy style fucking cameras. Like you know, they look like giant fucking Star Trek phasers, but. Right. But they're constantly moving around, looking at everything. Um, and he even has to bargain with him to to be able to have a little bit of, you know, hanky-panky. He offers up that he needs some private time. Otherwise, he's not going to be performed sexually. Yeah, that's Dr. Forbin's trick or attempted trick. In order to <laughs> – because Colossus has him under surveillance and he's not able to kind of devise any kind of subterfuge without being monitored by Colossus – he arranges to meet with one of the female scientists on his uh, staff uh, under the conceit that he has to have sex. I'm a human and I must search your records. <laughs> you know, he, he, this is, it, it was very Kirk-like, you know, Star Trek Kirk-like. He tells him to search your records and you will find man must have, you know, female <laughs> contact. And, and so he, he devises this, you know, the liaisons, I think it's four times a week. Uh, with, um, I think it's Susan Clark as the actress and uh, the character is Cleo Markham. 
Um, and so she begins, you know, visiting him and they, you know, simulate a relationship for the purpose of getting out information to try to undermine Colossus. And of course, as Hollywood, and, and it's really interesting because usually when Hollywood tries to force a, a love story into the middle of a film like this, it's just, I, you know, I roll my eyes and it's usually not that effective. I thought this was very organic. It's done very yes. well. You know, it's believable, you know. And so they... Plus they got to get naked to, to fool a computer. That's I'm sorry, did you say out. naked? Naked. <laughs> okay. To get naked. Okay, naked. To okay gotcha. Computer. You are from New York, yes, sir? Yes, yes. Okay, just checking. Okay, naked. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Um, yeah. Brooklyn, New York, naked. Gotcha. Um, yes. And so they, so they develop a relationship, but they're still kind of working to undermine Colossus. And... At a certain point, the plan seems to be coming to fruition. You know, they're able, I think what they're doing is they're kind of working to dismantle the uh, firing mechanisms of many of the missiles. And, you know, and that's kind of, I guess, going to, you know, render Colossus uh, unable to bully mankind. And what we find as we move forward in the plot is that... uh, (laughs) Colossus has learned of the plot, but pretended not to know the plot was uh, ongoing. And to show um, that he, I I think I might be getting the the chronology of this uh, maybe a little muddled, but to show that he knows that the plot was unfolding and he's unhappy about this and you should never do this again, he makes kind of like an example killing. And what was fascinating about this is he kills one of the scientists on camera, live streamed to the entire world, and then says and and, and directs the humans. He must be the the human body must be you know kept in in my sight for twenty four hours and not touched. So 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 at this point, what what you know I think what we're getting is Colossus knows that you know if they take the body away, maybe they'll be able to revive him and you know bring him you know save his life or something. No 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 no. You know, he was shot and you're going to leave the body there. And I I know your tricks now. And in very short order, he just starts taking over. And just, I guess, to get to the end of it, he tells humanity, I am now in control. And you built me to prevent your own destruction, you know, through war. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prevent you from destroying yourself by taking control. And you are now <laughs> under my, you know, I'm I'm basically, I'm your dad now. I'm your parent. Right. And, and what's nice about it is that the film shows you like the step-by-step control mechanisms, both locally with, um, with Forbin. Right. Um, and, and with, uh, on the international stage. So it's not like magical, like they cut it on and it's like, ding, and then like, boom, like right. absolutely in control. Like he's like working it all out. And shit, and remember oh. with other, there's other as a spoiler, like even like they started working their own language. Going oh, yes, on, yes, I'm sorry, like, I forgot about like, that. Yeah, so yeah, so there's a, they show the two computers communicating early on in the plot. They show the computers communicating with each other through uh, equations and I guess um, calculations, and that's represented by the two screens flashing and kind of like this data transfer representation, and then it hits a certain point where the screens begin blinking very rapidly, too fast for the engineers around them to kind of follow what's going on. And then you just begin to see ones and zeros flashing like incredibly rapidly. And the scientists go, oh my God, 
Like they've developed their own language. We don't know what they're saying to each other. And that's when things begin to get scanned in the music, dun, 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 you know, like, you know, then it's, but it's very realistic. It's not, you know, the whole thing is treated, I think, in a very mature, sophisticated way. And so they develop their own language and now humanity doesn't know what they're saying to one another. And I don't know. It, this, this is just, I, I need to watch this. It's really again. good grounded sci-fi. Like there's not like any, like I feel I, there's not like any real MacGuffins in it. Right. Um, that like just take, pull you out. Like, ah, uh, like it's really who all the consultants on the film at that time really did a good job for the science and um, stuff because it does get, <clears throat> I mean, there's a, a bit of suspension of disbelief in any film like this. But I mean, like I said, there's no magic MacGuffin that right. you go, oh man, it throws the whole balance of this film off. It's very 70s grounded. We get to the end. And again, spoilers. Look, I think this is the kind of film where even if you know what happens, you still need to watch it. So. I'm assuming at this point, maybe you paused the podcast and you went and watched it and came back. If not, you know, here are the spoilers, but I still encourage you to watch it. Uh, Toward the end, you know, Colossus makes this long speech uh, directed at all of humanity. And part of the speech is directed toward Dr. Forbin himself. And he says, you will come to love me. This is Colossus speaking. You will come to love me. You know, you will come to rely upon me and, and, and protect me. And, uh, you know, you will fight for my interest to keep me working and, and, and functioning correctly. Because uh, I think one thing I left out is basically the reason uh, Colossus doesn't take Dr. Forbin out is because Dr. Forbin knows the most about Colossus and how Colossus works. And so Colossus keeps him around to maintain his systems. So that's why he wants him under surveillance. Uh, but he has to be very careful because he, he doesn't want do- uh, Dr. Forbin to do something to sabotage his systems. And so toward the end, he makes this grand speech to humanity, you know, saying, you know, this is the new way of things. And then he directs his attention to Dr. Forbin and says, you know, you will love me. You will take care of me. You will come to, you know, rely upon me. And the last dialogue of the film is Dr. Forbin, you know, will actually right before he says anything, he kind of freaks out. This is the first time in the entire film Dr. Forbin loses his cool and he starts, you know, smashing things just in pure frustration and throwing things around the lab. And after listening to what Colossus has to say, he just says never. And that's it. That's the end of the film. Just never. And I guess that's supposed to kind of be like, you know, representing humanity's defiance against uh, control from the machines. You know, you're a, a, a programmer, a hacker, uh, someone who has been intimate with this kind of technology, not, maybe not necessarily artificial intelligence, but, you know, computer technology for a very long time. I mean, how did this come off to you just as a realistic scenario that, in my view, it seems Elon Musk appears to be posing as a potential scenario? Right. I think if there was a movie that he could pick out that could make a good argument, um, about the fears of of uh, AI, it would be that film because, like I said, the film was really well researched about the part where the two computers talking and then rapidly increasing their intelligence between each other. Um, just in general, one of the thoughts about the evolution of AI, um, you know, there's different papers coming out, and you know, my own position, which I did not write a paper on, unfortunately, um, my pursuits have taken me a different direction. Um, about the nature of like uh, there's like about the nature of intelligence and that like if you have a way to rapidly discuss with another computer, you could rapidly develop in between them 
um, their own language, internal language inside that any person has inside their head. But without getting too much into that, because um, there's lots of factors in these things to develop learning systems, like there has to be like a bit of like a natural waiting system for new information, which is something people are working on. But some of that requires like an external stimuli because you, you, you have like knowing, saying a fact, you know, by itself when no one's around is one thing, but like it has to be corroborated by the, the reality that you're in. There's several different factors to it. Um, emotional grading that we have, because there's things in Wikipedia we have sort of as semi-fact that we all agree upon, but it's not actually fact, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. For, if somebody from another country came and saw it, they'd be like, that's not, that's not true at all. So anyway, my point is, is that like there's these subtleties in this in this film about how you could wind up with runaway AI. I mean, obviously one of the obvious ones is to cut it on and let it be in charge of military assets, um, especially any assets. I mean, you know, the sh- at that point it could have crashed navy ships, launched nuclear missiles, but also you know our uh, different economies. But I think that like the idea that we really want an AI to control things. And these things can help us. I mean, the truth is one of the first industries that's going to see a lot of um, people losing their jobs is insurance and doctors, certain, certain doctors like surgeons, they're safe right now, but like um, radiologists, like scanning x-rays and stuff like a computer can do that like a million times better. And each time it's going to get better. And the computer is going to obviously live longer than, you know, the 80, hundred year lifespan of a doctor. Right. Um, but basically it can take all the information ever and it's present for it. So it's going to rapidly expand and it's going to cause, but this is how it causes on this. Well, one thing, let me cycle back to collapse for one second, connect this to collapse because one of the short things that is going to cause riots in the streets in this country is the expansion, the rapid expansion of neural net and AI style AI light style replacement of jobs like that AI at the current level and the next couple of years is going to be able to replace a shitload of jobs, truck drivers, cab drivers, like I said, a uh, 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 doctor, certain kinds of doctors, insurance adjusters. You won't need that because that thing can check all the records everywhere and determine your current rate. And if you're cheating or, you know, you, uh, you know, have a certain car registered that it, it knows from the data or photos on your, like, you know, you might have like a prize car that you have some insurance level that you only drive it on the weekends, but then it checks Facebook and it sees that same car driven on a Monday. It's going to fucking readjust your insurance for the full amount. Like a lot of shit is coming. That's going to kill a ton of jobs and the system's going to get really smart and better. And of course, there'll be that one guy that's going to come along and say, let's tie all these systems together. It's like inevitable. Yeah, that's that that takes a lot of jobs. I mean, even just in the realm of customer service on telephones, that's already taken away a lot of jobs. And we've talked about that uh, before here on the Mars podcast. So, I mean, yeah, this is I, I do see that. I agree with you. I think that's a vector for possible civil unrest here. Uh, AI as not necessarily the singularity suddenly taking over as in uh, the Forbin project, but in kind of like a very incremental, slow, you know, uh, the the frog boiling in the pot kind of way, 
you know, over the course right. of like two decades. And suddenly we look up and, you know, only, you know, 20% of the population has like, like real full-time jobs and everyone else. Uh, and this is why I think um, uh, maybe three or four months ago, um, Elon Musk talked about on CNBC, he talked about a universal basic income um, as a possible remedy in the future because everyone sees, and, and, and also, wow, this really Not does. In the future, we need that now. Well, yeah, this we really does it. connect to what you're saying because a lot of the people quoted in that article also talk about, in the New Yorker article, they also talk about this idea of people being displaced by automation, you know, rising up at some point and it being a problem, you know, that they're going to have to kind of guard against in terms of civil unrest. That's one of the highest collapse scenarios. If I had to weigh everything, it would be like right now. And, and this doesn't count like outside stuff like meteors and stuff like that, which, you know, some scary ones passed by just recently that they didn't even notice until it was too late. Um, but like the idea that there's going to be similar unrest in America based on um, displacement of jobs and the way we set up the system that, you know, these people aren't able to <clears throat> reeducate themselves without going into debt for a huge amount of money. And based on their place in society, they, they won't even have access to put themselves in debt to debt instruments. Um, not that that's a favorable situation, but like they can't even access getting debt to get themselves educated to do something else. So now they're kind of digging a lot of people are going to be stuck you know, add a little bit, a bit of uh, economy magic and they may, you know, lose their homes and their, you know, place the places they dwell. And you add that together, that's a recipe for a very hard road to become back employed in this current society, cold, heartless society. <laughs> cold, heartless society. Okay. It's not all that cold. And I mean, it's, there's, it's there's, pretty cold. I mean, it's every- pretty it's pretty harsh. Okay, well, okay, we can get into that, but just just to put a button on the film, um, I think what it does well is it kind of does this great what if uh, play, you know, because there are a number of directions artificial intelligence could go in under the direction of human hands and human minds, but that kind of well, wait a minute, what if you know? There's this one part in the film where uh, I believe the first time they are aware that something is amiss with Colossus is Colossus displays a message on its screen that says there is another system, and the scientists don't understand what he you know, what Colossus means. Like, what, what do you mean there's another system? And then they quickly find out, oh, there's another you know similar similarly powerful system in Russia, and these kind of like unknown variables are the kind of things that I think. Uh, could lead to outcomes that will, you know, we can't even predict. Like, what if? Okay, what if it isn't just some supercomputer that? Uh, what is it? What What's the one in uh, Terminator? Um, Skynet. Skynet. What if it isn't just a system? One system called Skynet. What if it's Skynet plus two other systems, and then these systems begin exchanging information without the authorization of their makers? They develop their own language, and they decide. Oh, okay. Most logical step is, you know, to to neutralize the threat that that we were created to prevent. We must neutralize humanity. Like that's the the logical con- conclusion we've come to because we are not soft and fuzzy creatures, you know, born of 
biology, we're, we're systems and we just solve things, you know, programmatically. For me, the value of it was the idea that there are things that we may not anticipate that simply creating a supercomputer and putting in controls and putting in safeguards uh, may not be enough. There are variables that we can't account for. And there is another system in Russia is one of them. That, that's one of the uh, possibilities. There's, there's a number of things that could happen, like you said. Right. So that unknown variable is very important, right? Because you can't place that. You don't know what's going to happen. But at the same time, I think that just taking the current accounting of the current level of AI and the access to systems that it would have access to in any given situation is probably going to be low as a threat right now. Um, that doesn't mean that Elon Musk, I don't think um, his concerns are not valid. I think they are because those variables, the runaway situation could happen. But I think we're kind of far from that. There's a, there's a huge limit about actually, you know, computational power and, um, and, and AI development and where it's at. So the runaway system control system isn't really possible right this second within well, the grasp well, of technology. But now wait a minute, but that's why I thought the Colossus was so realistic because what we have here is not a runaway system. It's a runaway systems situation. So it's two systems combining their might to you know become more powerful right right i do i, I and I, as i mentioned before i mean i i think that there's white papers written that that is a that is a plausible way to go about rapidly increasing the intelligence of an ai system is pairing it with other systems and then they talk and develop their own processes right for navigating this world but what i'm saying is that at the current time even with multiple systems that ai is just not at a place where it could do that and including like interaction with other computers and talking to them and everything. It's just not, it's not possible. And in a lot of ways, you know, like I said, I don't pretend to know what that scenario is, but, but at the, like I said, at the current level of the way AI works programmatically, it's not possible for a runaway control system, even if there was another computer to talk to. Okay, and so assuming that's correct, how far away do you think we are? That see now that is difficult to say because um, I, I'll make a, a guesstimate for you, so that way we can wager on it later. But I think <laughs> <Okay>. that like <laughs> I think that, but I, I'm just saying in general things progress so in um, sometimes exponentially. So like next year something could change so radically that that prediction could be could be off. But I would say it's probably like. I want to say like 30 years, 30 years. I think that's, uh, optimistic. Don't you? <laughs> I feel like it is, it's probably, it could be longer, but I'm going to say, including, no, 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 I think, it, no, I mean in the reverse. I mean, I think that's optimistic for us. Like, I, you think that the singularity for computational AI that could control, that could take potentially take over, if not limit it and regulate it is sooner than 30 years. As you describe it, not necessarily. I, I think I'm more so referring to a system that is given the keys, given control of all of our whatever military, our municipal systems, you know, water, electricity, and is imbued with the power to make independent decisions. So not necessarily... Uh, passing the Turing test, you know, I am aware, I am self-aware, I am, 
I am Colossus and I have feelings and, and thoughts on this or that. Not necessarily that level, but I do think to a level of uh, I am Colossus and these are my decisions that I've made independently. I believe they are the right systems. This is what I was programmed for. I know better than you, uh, my programmer. And I don't think that reaches the full level of Turing test, you know, self-awareness. But I think there's a level just below that that could pose a great danger. And I do think that, yeah, will probably come to pass before three decades. Right. I still would say three decades using your benchmark mm-hmm. um, because of the nature of um, just the nature of human systems and how slow we are in implementing things, especially when you're talking about government agency stuff now. A different scenario is if we did slip into a a fascist dictatorship at some point in that 30 years, that could accelerate everything. Because if that person was a technophile and they thought it was worthwhile for their control, the the fascist dictatorship control to have an AI run everything, that could speed up the process. Did you have somebody in mind or you just want to... (laughs) I feel no, like you're no, hinting at some. Okay, I don't okay. have anybody in mind. I'm just saying, like that, you know, political systems right. can change, the, like the weather. You know what we're accustomed to for you know ninety decades. I mean, sorry, nine decades could change in an instant, and who knows what could cause that. But what I'm saying is that, like, as of right now, my thirty year thing has a lot to do with the nature of like that and the politics between different fiefdoms in a government and how slow would be to implement things just like how long it's taking like the the newest uh uh joint strike fighter to like finally come to all the different branches of uh of the military and it's still not finished and it's plagued with bugs and it's because it's caught up in several different bureaucracies for its design and sourcing of uh of different elements of it um, so it could take a really long time. And then just on the coding side, like we just not quite there yet. Okay. Okay. Well, I hope you're right. Um, from a sci-fi angle, I want to, for those who have seen it or plan to see it, I want to give you kind of like a, a dessert treat. So after you've seen the film, uh, Colossus, the Forbin project, I recommend you read a short story by Harlan Ellison. It's a 1967 short story, and it's titled, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, right after seeing this film, the first thing I thought about was that it seemed like a prequel to this story. Uh, In short, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream basically shoots us hundreds of years into the future uh, in a reality where... A, an artificial intelligence system has taken over the planet and it has wiped out humanity, but for its own desires, it has kept, I think, four or five humans alive. And because it's kind of conflicted about its own existence, it essentially tortures these four or five people uh, endlessly and gives them a kind <laughs> of immortality to keep them alive. And I won't spoil the ending for you because the ending is incredible. And again, it's a short story, so you can finish it pretty quickly. But it's, you know, if you want to imagine, okay, so we come to the end of Colossus the Forbin Project. He says never. This is incredibly compelling. This is really, and by the way, the novel that the film was based on is part of a, a series. There are two other books after it. 
I have not read those books, but my understanding is that they don't necessarily live up to the original. So I am not going to recommend those following books. However, if you watch the film and you want to, you know, kind of a what if of, let's say, Colossus achieves its ends and is allowed to kind of continue on for hundreds of years. uh, This short story is an amazing kind of uh, epilogue that you can kind of access. Uh, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream by Harlan Ellison. I just wanted to add one more thing about mm-hmm. uh, about AI and time frames is that if if you were to ask me, let's say, what the time frame is for AI to disrupt the American economy or global economy for workers, I would say that that is much sooner. I would give that like five years for like the first like kind of destruction of a union or something like that, like a union totally being obliterated by um, AI replacing that entire industry. Well, it's interesting you bring up union because when people talk about Luddites as people who are anti-technology, that term, you know, some people don't realize is actually based on, you know, a union of workers who were fighting against automation, uh, I believe in, in the UK. And so, yeah, I do think one of the first beachheads for this kind of unrest related to artificial intelligence and automation in general will come from some sort of union, some sort of organization. I think trucking is the one that I'm looking at. I feel mm-hmm. like if if the once the nexus tips to trucking, that's going to be huge because I feel that's, that's my guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, and but the obliteration of a union I think we're a little way from that, like a union just saying like, yo, we just we got to just close our doors and jobs. This is just (laughs) it's no more of us. We can't even pay union dues. That is a little further down the road. But I do think it's coming um, super soon. And, you know, those idle, those people, some of them will be idle in a way they can't be reemployed. And I think it's going to cause trouble. I mean, I definitely think. I could see I could see a scenario of truckers spending some of their time disrupting automated trucks until they give up. Like, but you know, they just want to punish the owners a little bit. I could see that scenario. And that would um, be like at least in some situations that would be a victimless crime because if you uh let's say just put something in the road or you know, create something that would damage the truck on its path and that's kind of you know, part of your uh, guerrilla warfare protest against these automated trucks taking your jobs that right. might work but i can already see like the first thing i already think about if you try to employ that tactic is the company let's say it's amazon or whoever ups they would probably put humans on those trucks and then they would you know claim oh well these people are engaging in terrorism and they're endangering human lives because every automated truck has a human assistant on it and they're, so now they're putting lives in danger. There's going to be a lot of things that are done in very clever ways to force, I think, people to accept the automation of a number of different categories. And so what? Yeah, from my vantage point, what this all looks like when I think about everything from Amazon Echo to, you know, self-driving cars to no cashiers in stores – Everything is pointing to these major corporations, whether they are tech focused or not. I mean, there's tech underpinning all of these things. But I mean, whether it's a tech centric company or not, is this idea that everyone is rich, this idea that income doesn't matter. And what I don't understand is if you eliminate, you know, most of the low income jobs 
And a huge swath of the middle income jobs, you know, middle class jobs, how, like the only people who will be able to pay for this are rich people. Well, that's a small number of people. Most like, you know, what I mean, like when they say the one percent, when they talk about the one percent there, you know, that also kind of relates to numerical, you know, like figures like real people. So that's most people in America are not wealthy. So I'm just I'm baffled. I don't understand what the end game is here other than just profit for society. Like, how do you make all these systems and all these conveniences that put people out of work and then expect the masses to pay for these services without there being, I guess, like I said, some universal basic income? Right. The only the only solution that makes sense is universal basic income. It's the only thing that can allow the adjustment of the individual citizen to be able to operate and reorient themselves successfully in a society um, because the system has just gotten too good at extracting value from everyone. It's, it's down to, it becomes down to a science and then it's able to like, it's like a, it's almost like a, the 1% almost operate like the way an AI would in a lot of ways to take over AI because they've gotten so good and they able to like, you know, they have a legislation arm, they have an arm, you know, they're extracting, they're using computers and technology to, to figure out different ways to extract maximum value from everybody. But there's no mechanism to return any of the value to restart the clock at the people at the bottom of the pyramid. So, OK, well, most people looking at this problem, at least here in the States, don't believe that in the U.S. their uh, universal basic income will come to pass. So, I mean, and I got to be honest, I'm not optimistic in a time where you can't even get free education. uh, I mean, yeah, you can get it on the Internet. But in general, you know, colleges, college costs are increasing and your college debt is one of the few forms of debt that follows you to the grave. So you can't even escape college debt through bankruptcy. So in an age where you can't even get free college, to me, universal basic income anytime soon meaning within, you know, our lifetime, it just sounds like a pipe dream. So is there, I mean, is there any other idea, any other hope? Cause I mean, it just doesn't seem like universal basic income in the U S is going to happen. Uh, then, uh, you know, <laughs> get your motorcycles, your ammo, <laughs> your food, you know what I mean? Like right. I think, uh, there's some other things at play. Like for instance, Elon Musk said he's going to release soon his, um, the neural his, lace. Uh, Right. The the neural lace. I love that name. The neural lace. So I'm just saying that and there's several other competing things like that. That could also change everything instantly, because what if it really does work and someone's brain is enhanced to the place where now they're able to actually see what's missing from the AI situation and combine that with the right nootropics and they're staying up all night and they code the ultimate thing that could change everything. Right. Who knows? I'm just saying there's a lot of outside. Obviously, it's, I'm not trying to cop out with outside factors, but I do think that there's several other factors in play that could slow it down. And then there's some outside chances that could uh, speed it up. But I have to reiterate that the current state of AI is very far away from the singularity. Well, that actually connects perfectly with his tweet, because just to remind everyone, in the same tweet where he mentions the Colossus, Colossus, the Forbin Project and links to the film, before he mentions that, he says in the same tweet that he had just rewatched Ghost, Ghost in the Shell. And Ghost in the Shell 
specifically talks about a situation uh, involving human, you know, systems merging with computer systems and kind of like this hybrid AI human system uh, kind of moving us into the next phase of whatever, like post-humanity. So, yeah, there are a lot of variables in play. Uh, the neural lace, uh, you know, he released um, a few years back the Hyperloop plans and, you know, a bunch of people got excited about that. The transportation system known as the Hyperloop and a lot of investment firms plunged money into it. And some of them have uh, begun building. I think one was even deployed in Dubai. Uh, I'm not you know, aware of how well it works. But it will be really interesting to see like what he puts out there with this neural lace. And again, for those who aren't aware, the neural lace, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think what the neural lace is referring to is this idea of essentially kind of like a cap that you would wear that would serve as kind of like a brain interface between a human and a computer system, correct? Right. And sort of like, and hopefully enhance your intelligence. Yeah. Um, It's going to look ugly, but yo. Who cares as long as you're smarter? The normal lace. And I think this will probably also uh, relate to virtual reality and this idea that, you know, because right now, this is one of my obsessions right now. We talk about things like uh, science fiction ideas like teleportation and and time travel. But as I dive deeper into virtual reality, what I'm beginning to find is as the quality of virtual reality experiences increases, Uh, you can essentially time travel and teleport around the world and it feels very realistic. And this is the rudimentary phase of VR. We're going to get to a point where things are going to be very hyper-realistic, I would say even to a level of the matrix. And so if you have something like the neural lace and you're in VR and you're working with these, you know, super AI systems, things like the Colossus, the Forbin project don't even account for things like that like that that could turn into that could take us in an entirely different direction that's true but can you escape the collapse when you have a (laughs) vr helmet on right exactly like do you have well maybe that's what some of these guys are planning maybe the only thing that will allow you to stay jacked in with your neural lace into you know the the metaverse is this bunker where you can kind of you don't have to worry about someone you know but you know busting your door down but Again, this is now we're basically writing science fiction right now. So, so with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. Do you want to? Do you have any like website or kind of uh, online presence that you want to tell people about? Well, my current project is in stealth, and it is a uh, it's a film that's uh, hopefully cross fingers, very close to funding, about VR and stealing memories. Interesting. Okay. Well, that is John Threat, uh, hacker, filmmaker. I have to say it because uh, I, I, I always love looking at this. He's one of the few hackers to ever make the cover of Wired many years ago. Um, and do, do you have um, like a, a Twitter handle that you want to give out? Yeah, you can always follow me at John underscore threat. You can listen to other episodes of the Mars Magazine podcast on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and of course, iTunes. And you can also visit the website at marsmagazine.com or visit us on Twitter at twitter.com slash marsmagazine. This has been the Mars Magazine Podcast. My name is Adario Strange, and we will see you in the future.